WZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, a show all about transit, community issues, so much more. Take the program. We have on an old friend here from KZSU, Mayan Dembo, who's written a thesis researching alternatives to policing on transit. So we'll hear all about what these alternatives are and what the research says. Without further ado, uh, let's get uh, let's do some things. So uh, welcome, Mayan, and welcome back to uh, KZSU. It's nice to have you back on, on the air. Great to be back. Thanks. Yeah, uh, Mayan was uh, GM of KZSU here uh, you know, six or seven uh, years ago. But we are here to talk about uh, mostly something that you wrote uh, a bit ago called Off the Rails, Alternatives to Policing on Transit. Uh, and you did this in coordination with uh, ACT LA, the Alliance for mm-hmm. Community Transit. Just, uh, I guess, uh, you know, give an introduction to yourself. You're like, who are you? What are you doing? What, what's what's all this? <laughs> sure. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Mayan, formerly known as Majan to the listeners on the airwaves. I used to host a show called Pumping Iron a few years back. That's right. um, yeah, that was a great time. But now, um, a, a different life. I'm an urban planner. Uh, no longer so much a radio DJ, and I recently completed a master's in urban and regional planning at UCLA, a fine institution, where I also had the pleasure of doing some research um, on behalf of the Alliance for Community Transit Los Angeles as part of my degree program. Uh, Yeah, UCLA, I studied all things transportation from engineering to economics uh, and anything in between um i think i think i'll leave it at that for my introduction cool yeah. I, I just uh, saw you pop up uh, on housing twitter uh you know a few months ago yeah that's always a shock sometimes i sometimes i appear there apparently i'm not on twitter myself but so i had a funny text message come up from a friend who was like all these people, he's on housing Twitter. He's like, all these people are in my mentions. I don't know what to do about it. Hell yeah. Well, you're, you're part of uh, the uh, Unurbanist conference or something? Was that? Yes. Yes, I was. I presented at the Unurbanist conference. Um, I've had a chance now to, to kind of share my work with a number of other bodies as well, um, like NACTO, the National Alliance for Cities and Transportation Officials, and a, a few other kind of smaller orgs too. But the Unurbanist Assembly was the first place that I really was able to share things on a big scale. Cool. So, so your work—I mean, I think it's at the—it's at the nexus of a lot of really interesting things because, I mean, what is like what is transit in a city? It's like it is—it has to do with like how we have privatized space and public space, and then kind of what kind of people do we draw on to this public infrastructure, uh, and how are people how how you know how safe do they feel? Uh, and you know, basically, how do we improve the experience? Because I think there's a couple of ways you can like look at it. I, I I listen to a lot of people in the transit world. Like I think not people I like people on the edges who are like, we need to make transit better for middle class. Let's throw more cops at it, make it feel safe. <laughs> and I, that, I mean, I, unfortunately, that is the path of least resistance is just like mm-hmm. throw cops at stuff, you know, make, you know, upper middle class white women feel safe. I don't know. I mean, that's that's kind of may reductive, but I think that is something you see. And uh, I think... Uh, so maybe describe kind of, you know, one, this paper is alternatives to policing on transit. Uh, are there alternatives to cops? And what, what are these alternatives? There are a thousand alternatives to police. And I think 
you you hit the nail on the head here that it's it is the path of least resistance to go with armed law enforcement as the way to provide safety services because that's what's being done that's what's been done and in in popular narrative in kind of the ways that we think about safety the media association is armed law enforcement and so in this paper and in this research i wanted to uh kind of show other methods and so some of the things that i looked at um are transit ambassadors social workers public art elevator attendants um these types of of kind of bodies if you will that can provide the same the same service as armed law enforcement um and so again the paper the research that i did was really focused in the transit environment which is kind of an extension of public space um but if we th if we think a bit bigger than just transit those types of solutions are also feasible they're they're also implemented and implementable yeah so a lot of the research i mean you, you t it it, it kind of covers some different areas you uh you know take some reviews of both the bay area uh, mm -hmm. you know, Latin America in different ways, but a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, kind of the Southern California, the metro system, uh, where you've been based out of, at least in the past. Are you, are you still down there? Or are you, you move, move? I am. Cool, cool. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so it's like, I guess the first, like, you look at the ridership of LA Metro, and it's, you know, considering that the housing crisis in Southern California isn't that, like, the prices aren't that much less than the Bay Area. It's still a disaster. Uh, over 50% of the people riding the LA Metro system are making less than $25,000. That's an amazing mm -hmm. figure. That's mm -hmm. so... Yeah. Like, like that is just... I mean, like it's 85% uh, minority. Like, it's like, I mean, real... I mean, it's real, like, just underclass of, you know, it's... That's what happens when you make car, car use normative... And I think a big question here is like kind of one, you know, I think we can all agree it's, you know, crime is bad, but like, right. but no one wants that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's bad when people are being assaulted. Like, but the first question like is like, okay, it's not like the either or cops or crime. It's, it's an open question. Do cops reduce crime? And the second question is, do cops make people feel safe? And I guess that's one thing I've seen you like, you know, mention is kind of there's actual crime records and there's kind of perceptions of safety and kind of maybe, maybe just exactly. talk about kind of like why that distinction matters. Yeah. So, um, I think, yeah. So I'll start with this, this idea of perceptions of safety and actual crime rates, cause this is really important for ridership. And when we're talking about people, people's experiences on transit and experiencing an unsafe environment or something that they perceive to be unsafe that turns them off from riding the bus, riding the train, et cetera. And so this was, I wanted to bring this up because I think a lot of times when we talk about safety programs and you kind of alluded to this earlier about like the middle-class white suburban rider is, is people see this issue of safety as directly linked to ridership. And that if we want to bring more people on transit, if we want to kind of capture more of, more folks who I think that the term used is often like choice riders, people who they have a car, but um, the agency is trying to attract them to use transit. The, the, 
this issue of perceptions of safety is going to impact their decision making more so than actual crime rates. And perceptions of safety is something that's influenced by a multitude of factors, including like, you know, what's the chance of them being mugged or something like that. But also things like cleanliness, um, uh, like things that they people perceive to be disorderly. So if there's like folks with loud music or um, people drinking in public or like people uh, who are unhoused, like all those types of things that folks might perceive as being disorderly, they, that kind of falls into that category as well. And it's a super like fluffy topic. It's not it's not an algorithm by any means, whereas crime rates, you know, are, are a bit more kind of like understandable um, and you're able to kind of decipher them uh, more quickly. Sorry, I locked the door here. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, yeah, and, and, uh, and I, I think like one thing is important, like it's like it's the perceptions are not the same to different people. And there's like a exactly. Yeah, there's a division here of just kind of like what like do cops make people feel safer or less safe? And that's not the same answer for everybody. Yeah, totally. And I think that's something that I think that's being understood more broadly um, after this summer or this past summer with the protests or after George, George Floyd's uh, murder, that safety is different for everyone and cops don't make everyone feel safe. Um, but at the time of the writing, I felt like that wasn't something that was really uh, pulled apart in the literature. And from, from my understanding of conversations with folks from transit agencies, it just didn't seem like it was top of mind that um, different people need different approaches to feel safe and cops aren't like a one size fits all solution. And so there was a few like a few kind of studies that were done by transit agencies that kind of poked at this, but it was like in the appendix appendices mm. that you would find those types of information. It wasn't like the front page of, of kind of the main takeaways of it. Um, and so to your point, to your first question that you kind of started with about, you know, do cops make people feel safe? I think the answer is sometimes. And, and I, I'm sure that people would want a clear answer to that. I'm sure that they would want something a bit more um, precise, but that's not the case because safety is so, so fuzzy and it's such a nuanced topic as well. And there have been research studies that were done that looked at, you know, what what kind of security personnel do people prefer? And this was in, done in Europe. So the, the like context there's a little bit different around um, folks with guns and things like that. But basically it found that unarmed secu like unarmed um, security officers were the most popular type of security personnel with armed private kind of contracted um, security being the least popular. So, you know, there's something to take away from that, even though the context is different, that people with guns don't necessarily make folks feel safe. Um, shockingly. <laughs> yeah, there's like, there's even like heads up, you know, comparisons. And part of this is looking down in LA. This is uh, a group called Path and a group called Hope. Hope is actually an, like an arm of like, was it the force of the LAPD and the sheriff's department yes. and so on. So one of it is a police org and then PATH right. is effectively social workers? Yeah, yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, PATH is social workers that were contracted by Metro, the um, the transit agency down there to provide kind of homeless outreach services, um, connecting folks with housing, with shelter, with doctor's appointments, like getting ID in order, things like that. And um, HOPE, like you mentioned, is I think it's it stands for like homeless outreach prevention and engagement or something but it's an it's an arm of the LAPD and so it's uh, it's officers that are specifically in this unit that have done about 40 hours of training with the county versus social workers who have devoted their career to doing exactly that and perhaps have advanced degrees um, are constantly receiving train more training and updates and things like that and so these kind of two bodies, along with some other um, similar types of like police or social social workers that are actually cops, <laughs> essentially, like they're housed under police. Are, are, are they like are they are they uniformed or are they wearing like different? Yeah. So like they look. No, they're uniform. So if you see them, you'd say like this is a cop. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. And so there's, and you know, there's a long history of folks who are unhoused being harassed by police officers and like assaulted by them as well. Um, and so it comes as no surprise that these path workers, these social workers are so much more effective at actually connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and taking shelter on transit with services and with housing than these police units are. And I'll add an addendum to this that I actually just found out today that this hope, the hope division from L of LAPD has actually been disbanded. Ooh, so at the time of writing, yeah, at the time of writing, it was still kind of um, active. But um, as of, I think about a month ago or so, it's actually been disbanded. And I mean, it's it's worth mentioning, like, these people are hired by, you know, I guess I, I, I guess the, the metro, I don't know exactly know, that's probably dual uh, city and, and county government, I don't really know what's going on there, but it's big money, like, I think the LA mm -hmm. they said the police contract uh, overall was like $800 million for five years. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. And I think both the Path and Hope people, they're hired on like contracts the same time you know, and I think they're more or less the same order of magnitude. But as you're saying, like you look at the, the difference, like one of the stats you have here is how many people they hook up, uh, you know, homeless people to getting housing. Uh, Twenty-seven percent for the social workers, one percent for the police. You know. Yeah. So every for every one hundred people that these police officers, you know, that are part of these kinds of outreach teams. Um, for every 100 people that they come in contact with, they are able to find a housing solution for one person. Yeah. I and mean, I guess if you're looking like bang for your buck, as far as that goes, that's, you know, a much bigger impact. Totally. And I, unfortunately, I can't, I couldn't write bang for your buck in my, uh, my very academic paper, but that's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> With that attitude. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, I think that's like one of the questions is kind of like, yeah, it's like, what are you trying to do? Because I mean, Unfortunately, uh, I mean, the homelessness crisis in Los Angeles is tre tremendous. And I, uh, you're, you're referencing the fact that, you know, stations become hubs because even though they're not like a great place, there's like some of the if you're if you, you know, it's it, it, it generally is a hub for for 
uh, houseless people, and what do you do about it? And I guess in a humane world, you'd actually not have a homelessness crisis, but that's right. That's not what we're. Well, that's not the world we live in, unfortunately. Yeah. So, like a lot of ways, like I think the real kind of just. A bloodless thing is like, oh yeah, just throw cops to, you know, kind of deal with the issues, make people not feel unsafe by the homeless, kind of harass them to a right degree, and uh, you know, and this goes hand in hand with the fact that there's kind of a disparate of pa- uh, impact on profiling, you know, uh, mm-hmm. on trans. I think there's stuff at like fair, uh, you know, fair violations, uh, you know, kind of with uh, uh, black riders and. and white writers uh, anything you want to kind of just kind of talk about the yeah i mean that's been that's been a long long standing issue um in los angeles and and again the research that i did was really focused on bolstering act la's act la's advocacy efforts and so a lot of it is la focused because of that but um i think back in like 2012 i want to say there, there was this lawsuit that was brought to, I believe it was like the Department of Justice, that that showed this racial profiling that was happening on LA Metro by LA County Sheriff's deputies, where they were disproportionately citing, fining, and arresting um, black riders and Latinx riders on Metro system. And so that was kind of something that had to then be settled and and kind of, you know, reform. The Department of Justice was doing a lot of oversight of of operations. And ultimately what ended up happening was fair fair evasion then got sent as a responsibility to Metro's internal um, transit security officers. So that's something that's no longer handled by by these police officers, but for all intents and purposes, these transit security officers still look like cops. Like you wouldn't, just by looking at them, they have this kind of like black uniform, they have a a shield of some sort on their arm, you know, they carry a baton. Some of them are armed and carry weapons, depending on the class of them as well. And so to the average rider, it doesn't look like this really has been um, solved. They still look like police who are doing it, but because um, because Metro is now doing it kind of in-house, they're, they've actually been able to take that whole fair evasion process out of the criminal court and just handle it as like a... It's a civil issue? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's a civil issue, not a criminal issue. So it doesn't, it doesn't appear on people's like, you know, um, uh, records. And I, I think that there's like an option to do community service. I think the fines are a lot lower now as well. Interesting. Um, I mean, but it's still, the, the, I guess from that 2016 investigation, the numbers were like of riders, 19% of the riders are black. 50% of the citations were black riders and then 60% of arrests. So that was like a three time multiplier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, like how bad, you know, I mean, like an arrest is, is major. And I guess like you, so you're saying because it's civil, you will not have arrests anymore, but you'd have citations. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd have a citation for fair evasion. And I think what still happens though, is that ultimately Metro and many other transit agencies have what's called a code of conduct. And that's kind of the, the, um, the, the rules and regulations for writing. And if, if you violate a code of conduct and a police officer is feeling especially spirited, I, I imagine that they have grounds for arresting you. 
And so there's still arrests that can happen that way. There's still arrests that can happen, you know, if someone, if there's like an assault or a robbery or, or things like that. And like, you know, real crime that we don't want to have happen necessarily. But but the 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 people who are employees of the Metro, are they are they entitled to arrest people or do they actually have to tag in the actual police? You know, I'm not sure. And this is kind of an, it's an interesting question around po- powers of arrest. And I, I have, this kind of came up in my research a little bit with transit ambassadors as well. And from my understanding, the only people who have power of arrest in the United States are, are police officers. Some of the stuff you talk about is, I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning, um, like uh, New York City, like back in like the late seventies. This is post fiscal crisis. This is like like real kind of gutted out. Uh, you know the era of like high crime. Uh, the Guardian Angels. I mean, this is kind of like a fine line between kind of oh, how do you deal with crime and you know is this kind of the right way to deal with kind of volunteer type organizations or is it kind of on the border of like vigilantism? Yeah. And so that was, I actually had a lot of personal debate about including the guardian angels in this because, you know, on one hand, they were this really early example of a volunteer transit ambassadors who were unarmed and trained in certain ways to deescalate situations on transit. At the same time, we know that vigilantism can be incredibly dangerous because it depends on who is your vigilante. Yeah, I mean, I, I when you're talking about like Bernie Getz and a guy with an actual gun, that's obviously uh, <laughs> like that's not a great model. But these guys are unarmed; they're trained in self-defense, you know, systems. There was up to like a thousand of them at one point, but now mm-hmm. it's like now it's down to a hundred. But I, I, at different times, people like they said they increased the feeling of safety at a time when they felt the city was kind of just, you know, uh, I think letting the subways rot or, or whatever. But uh, it's like, how do you deal with the fact when these are not publicly accountable? Like, there's a lot of ugly stuff that can happen when you have kind of, you know, this. this Totally. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think one thing, at least in my understanding of the Guardian Angels, and I know that there's there's a lot of kind of different accounts of, you know, were they a good influence? Were they a bad influence? I think they're. The leader, Curtis Silva, has kind of a not-so-great reputation um, in some ways. Uh, but from my understanding, they, they did a really concerted effort to hire pe- to like bring people on to the Guardian Angels who were subway riders, who were kind of reflective of the area in which they were on the trains and in which they were kind of working. And I think that that makes a really big difference um, when you're talking about the like the vigilantism as like a strategy for safety, yeah. So I guess one thing to compare that to is you know uh, a different version of unarmed uh, people on transit. Uh, you know, out in uh, the Bay Area, it was this uh, the Muni uh, Transit Ambassadors? They actually had a p- official pilot program that launched uh, 2020. So this is something where it is unlike vigilantes. This is actually rubber stamped you know, approved by the organization, but it is still kind of this, uh, you know, this, this separate thing from kind of the official arm of the law. Yeah. So the, the Muni example is pretty interesting. And Bart, um, Bart's the one that started their transit ambassador program really recently in February of 2020. Mm. But 
Muni, um, the SFMTA Transit Ambassador Program, has been around since the the late 90s. And interestingly, that program started as a volunteer vigilante program. That program started by w- was started by some folks. Um, I th- I met, I think if I remember correctly, former gang members who saw kids getting in fights on the bus and were like, "This isn't good. We're gonna just ride the bus and tell kids to stop fighting." Yeah. <laughs> essentially and that program these volunteers were doing that for a few months um at the time willie brown was mayor and you know came across it saw it thought hey this is a great idea and rubber stamped it to be official so that's been going on for quite some time um and it's still focused on on these kind of like youth altercations so it's um the folks who are are employed in this program are mainly riding bus lines or um, rail lines that are kind of feeding to and from schools and transfers and, and things like that and kind of focusing on that. But that doesn't mean that their only purpose, they only talk to young people. You know, they're there answering questions from old grandmas to de- uh, de-escalating other situations as they come up. And generally, they're just a, a, an authoritative figure on the line as well. Yeah, it's, it's a, you, you, you mentioned a few times here kind of, you know, how an important variable here is fear of strangers and you know transit insofar as it connects you know it is kind of a of like a lifeline within communities it really you know it, a major thing that matters is making sure that it is representative and controlled or at least kind of you know kind of has this connective tissue to a community and if you have kind of this external agent with a baton you know that's a very different thing than someone who kind of like you see it's like oh yeah this is someone who i you know, would, you know, recognize as a person in my community and makes me feel safe in, in, in that kind of sense. Yeah. 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 And that was um, in speaking with the BART board of directors, some of the folks on the BART board of directors about their program, they were still kind of in the early implementation when we talked in like, I talked with them in February and in March of 2020. Um and one of the things that one of the directors kind of set offhand, uh, and I'll, I'll keep them anonymous for, for that reason, is they were kind of like, you know, if it ends up being that most of our, our transit ambassadors are, are going to end up being like white suburban transplants in the Bay Area who, you know, are riding these trains like in Oakland and in Alameda and stuff like that and aren't reflective of the community that this board of directors person was like, you know, I would question the efficacy of that program. And I thought that that was, that really resonated with me Um, because I I do think it's important to ensure, like you're saying that the way that we kind of bring bodies to do safety is reflective of the, the kinds of folks that you could see in the grocery store, or you would see perhaps in other public spaces as well. And I mean, I think this goes hand in hand with the fact that like there's a feeling like if there is like, OK, this this you know minority community has kind of white ambassadors is like a feeling is this kind of like, are you trying to replace the community? Is this a form of gentrification? Is this a form of kind mm-hmm. of like you don't want to have like, you know, kind of like British colonizing forces out in, like in the out in the third world, you know, running this like it's I, I think a lot of ways that might be people even without like thinking about it might be the past least resistance so it's it's very important that people like i don't know like i i i really worry that like there's a lot of the, the line between having kind of effective transit and 
kind of the fact that in the zero sum space, everyone is so afraid of displacement and gentrification and, and so on. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a very scary line that, you know, the line between effective public infrastructure and uh, carceral urbanism go, goes hand in hand. And that's, that's, it's a really, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a really scary, <laughs> scary thing right there. Uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, carceral urbanism as, as a phrase? Is that something you've like, is that something you encounter? I mean, that's a big housing discourse. Probably. Thing. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that I feel like my, the part of my brain that automatically turned off when I graduated grad school is like ringing right now with that. But I don't, I don't know if I actually, yeah, I think, you know what? Yeah. The policing, I think policing plays a huge role in that. I imagine, you know, yeah. carceral <laughs> policing, um, and and I, I imagine kind of the the way that we're currently providing safety service and the status quo right now is f- directly feeding into that. Yeah, into carceral urbanism. And I mean, I think like it's it's worth it's it's nice to say like oh everything is a very clean story. Things are like sometimes a bit muddy. Uh, I think mm-hmm. there's a stat you have here from like a, it's a women on transit study and asking women on transit do they feel there's not enough. It was a pol- like not enough security. I'm not sure exactly what the phrase is, but 54% says there's not enough. And then only 8%, yeah. I think it was policing. Yeah. Yes, it was policing. And there is something I think that needs to be clarified about that because this is something, this is a case where it's really important to dig into the statistics. And so one of the things about the way, the way that this survey was conducted is that it was, it w- the respondents were reflective of LA County demographics. The survey was done as part of this larger, st- this kind of larger study. And so there was like an online survey that a marketing firm um, was kind of contracted to do. And they found, they found participants who were reflective of LA County, both ethnically, uh, gender and age wise mm. as well. And there was kind of this like ethnographic methods section that was digging deeper with um, with populations who are a bit harder to reach. So folks who are undocumented or immigrants and also women who are experiencing homelessness. And so <clears throat> the survey um, that was asking people, you know, do, do you feel like there needs to, I think the wording was like, do you feel like there's enough police on metro or something like yeah. that to this extent that was the the respondents to that were reflective of la county which uh, you know for listeners who might not know the demographics of transit riders are not reflective of la county interesting 90 percent yeah 90 percent of the county but not at all the metro exactly yeah exactly and so when we think about the the actual people who are riding metro day in and day out that's not 50% white or 60%. Yeah. I think it's like 54% white is LA County or something Interesting. like that. Um, that's not the same. The same people that respond to the survey are not the ones that are riding Metro day in and day out. And unfortunately that stat is being tossed around today or this week at a Metro board of supervisors meeting as a justification for increasing policing budgets where, those people who responded are not the daily riders and thus you know it's important to think about them when we're if we want to think about how to attract more riders to the system yeah. but at the end of the day 
right now we're in a pandemic and the people who are riding on transit are the ones who need it to survive like as a real lifeline and so when we think about how are we going to be catering services to support our our current riders that are riding on this whose voices should we be listening to that's really interesting yeah i i, I guess I, I i missed that context but that's yeah it's it was it came up through uh, an informal lunch conversation with a consultant that worked on the the project and i my my like jaw almost dropped to the floor um, when they shared this information with me yeah i mean i was just i couldn't believe it <laughs> i was like you didn't include this anywhere what that's it yeah i mean i feel like all these different factoids they become part of the political discourse and i and i saw like act la was uh talking about okay do we approve this next police budget yay or nay and like it's like yeah it's like all these different pieces of of, of knowledge are your are your weapons on how you uh how you're gonna you know vote up or down on this stuff so it's it's like that's yeah this context really does matter a lot mm-hmm. and uh i mean i think it kind of goes you know hand in hand with kind of just like what is the what is the vision and i think when you deal with the fact that like la like a lot of places dealing with the housing crisis dealing with the homelessness crisis is the answer i mean I would say, you know, something that veers more towards like, oh, just clean up the problem. We have kind of the normal people and then we have the kind of problems in the city, wash them away. Or is it the idea of like recognizing that these are all people, these are all residents, these are all people who need to be, you know, served? Because uh, I, I don't, I mean, I, I like, there's some really scary voices I hear from, from LA from, from a distance. Not that the Bay Area is great, but LA certainly seems like there's a lot more people just with a very loud voice saying like, oh yeah, just clean away, clean away the homeless. Yeah. I think unfortunately, um, some of the, uh, Mike Davis wrote a book, City of Courts yeah. about like 30 yeah, I early don't 90s, 90s i think yeah early 90s and a lot of the discussion that that he wrote in there about the power dynamics of la are still true that a lot of homeowners in the valley in the san fernando valley in particular are very strong politically and they hold a lot of sway towards politicians i think that's changed i'd like to think that's changing from like my uh, very amateur political kind of armchair gazing and strategizing. I I think that's changing. I think, it I seems think LA like is like more... ten years behind the Bay Area. Is that that's that's, <laughs> that's my ouch? <laughs> I just I know the discourse. You know, I'm no no offense, but that's that's what I see. I mean, like and to be clear, you're you know you're like you grew up in the Bay Area and everything, so you know you know yeah. both worlds pretty well. I mean, yeah. So again, the I I don't. I'm not. Fr- I'm not from Los Angeles. I moved here like seven years ago. So the perspective I have is very much of an outsider. The my my perspective more in the Bay Area is one of like, oh yeah, these are like the things that I saw when I was a youth and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I think I'd like to think it's changing. Maybe it's the optimist in me. Yeah, it's. Uh, but I mean, like that is a real question. Kind of like you said, like, oh, you know, can we get to a world in which there's less just kind of managing the homeless crisis and fixing it? Because like, there's issues like kind of like, like for example, like you know, access to, to like restrooms and all this, and like mm-hmm. it's like it's like one of the wild things. Like after nine eleven, like one of the responses right. is like let's close down every restroom and every like public <laughs> transit agency. 
I know. The unintended consequences. Like, the really, the unintended consequences of that are wild. Yeah, but, like, it also kind of mentions the fact that, like, yeah, like, a lot of places are just like, oh, yeah, who cares? You know, you, people can manage it. But, like, it kind of just speaks to the fact that, like, boy, like, who can't manage it? It's usually, like, the like it is the most vulnerable, the underclass, and so on. But, you know, the powers that be might say, oh, who cares? You know, just... Right. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I wish, I feel like that is such a, um, a little minute section of like FAA law that somehow has these huge effects on, on urban centers and on cities in general. We gotta, we gotta do something about that. We gotta do a letter writing campaign or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, I was just like, I guess like someplace, I remember like just being, I've not been internationally much, but like in Hong Kong, just seeing like, oh wow, there's actually restrooms inside of a subway station. That's what a wild world they, they live in. Who would have ever thought? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you talk about like the fact like, you know, houseless you know, people, there's not municipal restrooms. There's not inside of these public places. And Obviously, in the age of COVID, things got you know a million times worse. You know, it's like yeah. how, do you, how do you deal with all this stuff? Uh, well, one more thing to, I think to mention that you talk about here is uh, CPTED, uh, crime prevention, Ooh. crime prevention through environmental <laughs> what an acronym. design. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Nice. Uh, say more. Yeah. So this is actually, um, you know, I, I'll just start off with a little asterisk here that since the time of writing my thesis i've i've read more i've become more kind of aware of some of the issues and criticisms of cpted crime prevention through environmental design it's like a um an architectural school of thought and a design school of thought where we can change the built environment we can use the built environment to change people's behavior and it's come to my attention that there there's uh, a lot of problematic things that stemmed from crime prevention through environmental design. It was a lot of the theories from it were the were kind of the basis of broken windows policing, yeah. which, as we know, increased surveillance and increased policing in black and brown underinvested communities. And and so, you know, I think it's important to kind of understand understand the history of it and how it has been used in detriment. Um, but I think in, in transit environments, there are some really important takeaways from crime prevention through environmental design that help kind of illustrate that there's other ways to, to improve safety aside from law, armed law enforcement. And that was really my takeaway from reading through some of these things. So it's the kind of thing where um, crime prevention through environmental design kind of advocates, for example, Citing uh, bus stops in areas where there's a lot of kind of like sidewalk activity, where there's good lighting, where there's stores that have sight lines to the bus stop as well to provide um, what's called like natural surveillance, basically yep. of like a shop owner keeping an eye on on the the bus stop, etc. And so. For example, bus stops, um, there was kind of an analysis of, of crime that was done where bus stops that were sited in areas that had poor sight lines. So, um, few, you know, you could kind of couldn't see it as well from certain areas that they had higher incidences of crime than bus stops that had better sight lines um, from from more areas and and things like that. There's uh, there was a really kind of monumental study that looked at um 
all these different design interventions that were done in, I I believe it was like a New Jersey train station. So things like kind of reducing nooks, Mm. um, making, making sure that lighting was really good, putting, moving the, the fare kind of information booth um, from this like top platform where people were mostly walking through to this bottom platform where people were actually waiting for their trains and spending longer amounts of time. And there were some other innovations there too, like increasing lighting, um, things like that. And they actually found that the, these design interventions were more effective at reducing crime than placing armed law enforcement on, in this train station were, Yeah, which that's, that was like a aha moment to me when I was doing this literature review of like, holy smokes, this really, this really works. Um, and, and there's data that backs it up and, and no one's like being like, Oh, remember Felsen and Felsen from 1989. We, we really got to think about the design interventions before we increase police budgets. Um, like, <laughs> unfortunately, like, I guess it's like a big question. Like, well, how do you iterate through this stuff? Cause usually it's kind of like you have, like, it's almost as a given you have a transit station. It's just kind of side. It's designed and like, it might be some kind of whiz kid architect, you know, builds the whole thing without kind of maybe like realizing, Oh yeah. Is this going to create all these like kind of weird, uh, exploits like you know not that like you know like I mean I think if you have a bunch of muggers you probably have like bigger fundamental issues but like I feel like if you bunch of like under like a crawl space under stairs you can either like have it exposed or you can kind of like have it blocked off you know and, like yeah one of the, like there's a big difference between the two and in a lot of ways yeah it's like it seems like it's certainly like just like all like almost just kind of like a you know positive sum pure win if you can just make something just naturally work better through design but i think mm-hmm. like as you say too like there is like there is kind of like a you, you can see a kind of thread between kind of oh just make if you design it better there's gonna be less problems to uh like the idea of like hostile architecture uh just the idea of like if you like hostile design like oh we'll make a bench where homeless people can't sleep on and that's a pure win it's like well that's not really a win you're just kind of like there's fundamental issues here you're kind of like just papering over but yeah, and and with hostile architecture too, then you get situations where it's so hostile that it's not even comfortable for for anyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like no one wants to sit on that on that chair. It's a small and price other, to pay for, to make homeless people less less uh, you know comfortable to make everyone less comfortable. <laughs> Jeez. But yeah, I remember these one these one chairs that were particularly egregious. Speaking of that, were in Santa Monica, where like the the seat was so small like you couldn't really put your butt in it unless you were probably a child it, it was very frustrating That's, yeah it's 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 nutty like and like i guess like if you look at places like where i i mean i, I think you like you look at like a place like the nordic countries where there is kind of more or less a functional welfare state people feel like there's more or less functional egalitarianism they would never do this but you look at oh, a place where a significant part of the population is this homeless underclass it's like i don't know just everything with the world gets uglier for everyone you know it's like that's just mm-hmm. not great <laughs> you know it's real real bad stuff but i mean like it is kind of an alternative like instead of increasing police budgets so like act la was saying oh yeah just we should actually be you know like, putting in better lighting and, and, and other stuff. Like mm-hmm. it's, I, I certainly, if it's an either or <laughs> like there's, there's certainly some good, like why not have good lighting? Uh, 
Right, exactly. And it's the kind of thing, too, that, you know, these so, some of these interventions are pretty costly, I'll be honest, like the design stuff. You can't necessarily retrofit a transit station to, to meet all these different needs. Um, but putting in lighting at a bus stop is something that that benefits everyone who lives in that neighborhood as well, who passes by that bus stop every day on their way back from the grocery store, regardless of whether or not they're a bus rider. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say like, you know, ideally it would be kind of an iterative process where you kind of have new stations pop up, new developments and so on. I mean, unfortunately, you know, is that the way our cities work as opposed to the fact that like we're dealing with kind of old architecture, like the passed down from, I don't know. It's like, we're not we're not kind of we're not iterating as much as we can i mean like a big part of this too is you know uh cpted kind of comes from the jane jacobs eyes in the street kind of like her concept mm-hmm. like organic organic neighborhoods and so on i'm mean, obviously you can point out many <laughs> kind of flaws with the jane jacobs kind of mindset but I, I think there is certainly a lot of ideas that like when when your city is kind of an organic design where people look out for each other and there's a lot of kind of just you know action and movement and connectivity like yeah things things kind of work better than if it is kind of a top down we drop a station here and then kind of like we police it like it feels more like you're in a war zone or something at its very worst yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) so i don't know it's uh but uh i mean so is is as far as outside of like lighting, is there much that's kind of like actually like, oh yeah, ways you can kind of retrofit CPTED in a way that's actually scalable? The cutting off the stairway under, under parts. Yeah. I think that's a, a very easy thing to do. Um, there was something that I, I think that's come up to my attention that I don't think I wrote about very much, but the use of street vendors as well and, and allowing street vendors into spaces also helps with that. That's super scalable yeah. right now in, in Los Angeles. And I'm, I'm, I don't know, I can't speak to the Bay area about this, but street vending is in this really weird, like gray area where it's legalized in some places, sure but you still need a permit and the permitting process is super expensive and kind of cumbersome in other areas. It's still illegal. And so depending on these, you know, city boundaries that you don't necessarily have memorized block by block, um, street vendors are in kind of a precarious situation, but their street vendors are also in an ability to, to kind of provide that natural surveillance. Yeah. Um, and help kind of build that community, build that sense of neighborhood trust, familiarity, et cetera, in, in transit stations and in, in kind of transit facilities. Sure. And I guess like this kind of goes uh, to some extent, I guess uh, an upgrade to transit stations for accessibility are elevators. But, mm-hmm. you know, like elevators, as far as like it's it is in a lot of ways... Uh, one of the least well-connected, you enter a box and then you like leave a box and uh, there has been issues with, you know, public urination, defecation, needles and so on. And I guess BART in the last couple of years has been putting elevator attendants. You know, these are unarmed people like, you know, we used to have <laughs> elevator operators in every elevator. But right. uh, I mean, it certainly seems like just, you know, just having someone, having a person you know, looking and present has almost completely eliminated these problems, you know, as far Mm -hmm. as the the numbers go. Yeah. So this was a joint program with um, SFMTA or SF Muni 
and BART in kind of their shared stations um, in, in San Francisco and kind of in the downtown area. And yeah, these elevator of attendance dramatically improved the conditions um, in elevators for, for riders, like a 98% reduction in instances of urination, defecation, and uh, like in, injection yeah. um, using needles. And and this some this was something that I think was kind of brought up again on the heels of a lawsuit because that is the society that we that's how change is made oftentimes. Um, uh, an, a, an ADA lawsuit that these facilities weren't usable by people in the disability that who were disabled. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's there's a lot a lot to to say for that. I think elevators too, you know, they're like a confined space. They're they're not the most welcoming often, and having some a friendly face there, who day in and day out you see, you kind of get to know them. Perhaps it it adds something to your overall transit experience too. Yeah, I think it goes hand in hand. Like it's like is is the accessibility something that you do to kind of just stay legal it's like oh yeah we throw in this elevator yes it technically complies what we have to do no is it good no it's it's like awful it's being abused no one would want to use it but like i I think ideally you want to create something that like is actually good it's actually nice to use yeah but Yeah, yeah totally but uh and i guess like as far as kind of like yeah add, adding more delight one more like fun part is like you're talking about kind of in like uh, latin america looking at like bogota and mexico city uh some sort of interventions in you know transit and traffic have explicitly been fun uh and actually have had yeah. actually but been able to actually get pretty good results for that so say a little more about that oh yeah this is like this is the stuff i love so i before working in um in transportation, I, I worked for a, a bit in public art, so I, I have a very fond place in my heart for these types of public art-minded interventions. Um, yeah, so I'll start with Bogota because that was the part part of the inspiration um, for for the Mexico City uh, program. So in in Bogota, the uh, mayor at the time saw a problem: traffic violence. A lot of people were um, being killed, and uh, kind of as pedestrians, as drivers, um, just in basic, like, you know, crossing the street when it's your turn yeah. or not, <laughs> or stopping at stop signs, things like that. Like these really like basic things. And the way that the, the traffic cops at the time who were kind of the ones managing that, um, they, they handled that and they approached it with let's, let's give out traffic fines and then pocket the money for ourselves and perpetuate a system of corruption. So the mayor, um, (laughs) bad news. Uh, So the mayor that came in um, around that time, you know, saw this issue, saw this problem, recognized that maybe the traffic cops weren't the best way to address it. And instead employed a troop of mimes who would, make fun of people when they did the wrong thing, applaud good behavior, and uh, encourage crowd participation in this whole thing. So I think this is an interesting example because it takes um, it takes something that could otherwise be a confrontational situation and it de-escalates it and makes it a humorous situation, which people are more receptive to. Um, so in the course of a 10-year period, um, we stay in in Bogota, they saw the the 
fatalities from traffic collisions be reduced in half. Uh, that's incredible. Visions like to put that into context. Uh, I don't know of any Vision Zero program that has achieved those same results. What was I guess? Wasn't this like Norway had some really good results? Okay, but they are like the first ones, and they invented like all the bike infrastructure. So sure. I don't. Well, no, no, I don't. I, include... I mean, we can't all we can't all aspire <laughs> me, to be Norwegian, but let me, let me just uh, let me change that sentence. <laughs> I don't know of any American Vision Zero programs that have achieved those same Fun, results. Yeah, no, that's funny. Well, do you know how many people like were hired in the the miming program? Done. Yeah, so it started off as like forty, and then it grew to four hundred yeah. in total. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's like it's very funny because like it's like what are the energies flowing through people's bodies as they go through like transit? Like, is it just kind of like compliance, kind of urgency and fear? Like, it's like there's a lot of different kind of like it, it is very funny if you kind of like you know, bring humor or different kind of like weird because like etiquette all like there's a lot of like tied up like energies that you can kind of unleash that like uh, it's not great if people are just scared all the time so that's uh, yeah and i i don't think people are scared all the time i think one thing that is it's easy when thinking about these these topics is to kind of get in that mindset of like everyone is just constantly afraid that they're going to be mugged but that's not the case yeah. like you carry the same energy into the transit system of what you what's going on in, in on your day like if you're having a great day you're gonna be smiling on there you're gonna be thinking about how you just got that raise or like your honey that you're going back home to or you know something along those lines um i i people cry on transit a lot of people cry on transit weirdly i have a i have a theory about this really that people cry yeah i have a theory that people cry more on transit because it's one of the public spaces that you have the right mix of anonymity but also like shared humanity it's it's a bit of a i didn't include this in the paper obviously but i i have a i have a theory that people cry on transit more that's fun i i will be honest that doesn't really <laughs> i don't think i have any memories of seeing people cry on transit i don't i've i've given maybe this is well this is the difference i i remember when people cry on transit and i immediately and I like, black out and, and suppress the memories <laughs> and you're just like avoid the situation yeah funny funny uh and yeah i think it was something similar it was kind of clowning on the mexico city subways and so on yeah, yeah. so it was a similar similar approach where um and this is kind of interesting because i ended up talking with one of the co-founders of this kind of this clown troop that was on the subway um doing a similar thing just trying to inform people about kind of the way that they put it was efficient um etiquette so you know, waiting for people to get out of the train before you go into the train, going in the with the flow of traffic up the stairs and not going against it, things like that, like pretty like standard things. But if that's not happening, can actually lead to like kind of intense emotional altercations sure. and uh, confrontations. And so it was interesting because this group when they first started they were like oh let's let's be referees soccer is a uh, football soccer is like a universal experience a lot of people will will see us in a referee costume and immediately understand what's happening but they found that approaching people and using whistles and shouting at them was like did not lead to good results that just led to escalations of situations people getting more aggressive and infuriated whistles whistles so are pretty said, unpleasant they're they're not great yeah. and they like probably echo yeah, and stuff a, in the train yeah, like sure. no one wants that sure. so instead they they were like okay referees didn't work let's just put on like red noses 
which is kind of a universal symbol of a clown, and do miming techniques and clowning techniques instead. And that was much more effective. People would laugh. They would they would kind of be able to recognize and admit that they did something wrong. And overall, the interaction was a thousand times more pleasant and more effective and actually kind of getting achieving their goal. Now, long-term change, did anything happen from that? I don't know. In Bogota, they were able, there was a lot more monitoring mm. and evaluation of the program. With this clowns, like, they, these, this was just like a college project that kind of kept up for a few years. And then after some time, people, the, the folks that were doing it kind of just got tired and stopped. But um, so we're not really able to know what the results of that were. Funny, but it's it's going to be trying. I mean, that's, I think if you compare it to like, it is unfortunate that I feel like the serious space, like we need to deal with this. The serious thing is bring people with small instruments that shoot metal things out of them. You know, it's like that's serious. I, I mean, like if he's like, oh, we should have like mimes. I think, you know, that doesn't really, uh, I think people it's like you're not very serious. But like, I don't I, I was just like thinking just right now, it's like Walmart, you know, it's a, it's a company big enough in the world to kind of like, you know, probably hire an assassination squads if it wants to. But like, like it like says like, oh, how do we deal with like safety at the front doors? Like, oh, let's get a bunch of old people. It's like, uh, you know, just, and there's a thing too, like, uh, like I trust kind of them iterating through weird stuff to optimize their billions of revenue, you know, as, as yeah. opposed to kind of, I think that a lot of these public infrastructure, it's like no one really cares what works, what doesn't work. They just throw money at kind of what seems safe and cops feel safe, even if it isn't. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a real, I think that's a really good point where, you know, Walmart is willing, is more willing to experiment than transit agencies and uh, presumably walmart has stockholders and shareholders to report to like a transit agency does not have uh, a board of directors to show revenue earnings and profits to yeah um <laughs> i don't know it's like i i just i i do like where like when you like is is transit you know is it a lifeline to kind of is it like a charity program or is it supposed to be a functional thing that serves everybody and like works and you know i i mean like they're th throwing 800 million dollars at it but when you look at the like i just i'm still blown away Twenty five thousand dollars is like a median usually like it's like this is it's 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 definitely it it is a it is a symptom and part of like the great inequities. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I do think it is important to note, especially for, for barrier audiences, the, the median income in LA County is significantly lower than it is in the Bay area. Like this is like a, I think it's somewhere around like 50,000, 54,000 a more year. More in line with the U S median, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so it's, you know, transit riders are still low income and I'm not, like sure. negating that that's still a fact and yeah i think in in la you see that even stronger where and and just anecdotally like as soon as folks have enough money they'll buy a car yeah. and and it's there's like a there's there's like a culture around that as well yeah i like i like one friend like down in la that like i think every time he had to go somewhere it was like 
literally like three transfers in a bus would be like four hours you know this is it's it's not not functional (laughs) i don't know yeah but it it depends a big part of it depends on where you live too there's areas that have really great transit service there's areas that have really poor transit service i'd like to compare what the rent of the places with better transit service probably are you know it's i don't know if it's linear okay (laughs) yeah i think of areas like brentwood that are in like Bel Air, yeah, that are the the highest, um, most expensive parts of the city. Terrible transit service. <laughs> they don't have good transit service. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sometimes sometimes it's a perk, but it's not always a disqualifier. I mean, I think we're well we're yeah. well aware of the middle of you know Silicon Valley how bad the transit can be around some of the most expensive places uh, yeah. out there. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think I more, more or less kind of you know covered uh, most stuff in the paper. But you know, more thoughts you want to share about kind of what you've like kind of learned or what are the biggest takeaways as far as all this research? Yeah, I mean, I definitely set out. I I did this research with with this mindset of understanding what works in other places and what options there are outside of armed law enforcement. And my big takeaway is just they exist and it's it's just maddening that we have we have this issue of safety and for the last 100 plus years we've only been tackling it with one strategy like i don't think that that kind of mindset exists for anything else where we just try one thing and that's it and we stick with it and we don't try other stuff and the reasons why are are murky and convoluted um, and we throw a lot of money at it and it's not really clear if it's working. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of reasons why alternatives show promise um, reducing contact and interaction that with police officers that could potentially lead to deadly or harmful outcomes is one of them. Saving money is another one. Um, and just generally making more people feel safe in different ways is is another one and seeing what, what else works and what else is out there. Yeah, it's good to have alternatives opposed to, I think there's maybe like a, a dire dichotomy of you have kind of like people who are just real law and order folks like are like, oh yeah, safety, safety, like safety is a dog whistle for kind of just all sorts of like, we need to control the population. We need to bind the outsiders. But like, and then the other, like, I think if you, just have a defeatist attitude the other hand is like oh let's not think about it let's just pretend everything is fine and like ideally you can create alternatives that both are effective and aren't so much of this kind of uh highly you know carceral you know approach mm-hmm. but uh cool yeah yeah and yeah i think on that on that kind of front as well like the the approach of using police as the method of of providing safety services is super punitive um it's really reactionary it's not proactive it's there's no there's no kind of like learning opportunity in in the way in which that system is set up so i think that these alternatives also provide more more of a proactive approach more of like a a harm reduction approach as well well cool well um so i guess if people want to you know do you do you feel like you have much of an online presence to keep track of you or you you... honestly i don't um the best way to get in touch with me would if you have other questions or want to follow up would be through email yeah um 
Yeah, I which is uh, my first name, period, last name at gmail.com. You know, Carrier Pigeon might Hell be yeah. a solid second choice to that. I I have a Twitter account. Um, I intentionally set the password to be very con- confusing nice. and not one of my normal passwords, so I hardly ever go on it. So it's not it's not much of a a medium uh, for me. Well, cool. In any case, it's it's good to have uh, more Kizushu people in in the realm of of uh, our, our crazy uh, system of of planning and, and so on. So. Cool. Thanks for the time to be here. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. We have been talking to Maya and Dembo all about alternatives to policing on transit. In the show notes, I'll post a link to the paper itself. You can find those notes as well as all previous episodes of the show at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KCSU Stanford 97.5.